Sorry, I put it on the auto lock on my phone so it won't turn sideways. Um, hi. So, hey, you know me. Good segue to my intro. Um, just thinking about two years ago, two and a half years ago, when I shared a sermon here, um, it was a job. It was a step to a next direction for me. Um, ministry was a task, a job, a duty, and it wasn't a part of who I was. It was something I was called to do as a non-relational thing. And so I remember two night years ago, standing in front of many of the same faces here, and it was, you were strangers. You weren't people that I really knew. And thinking back on that, as I prepared for this sermon, I thought about how um, much that didn't really matter because I think our culture shares that ministry, pastors, it's just something you do. It's not something you're intimately involved in. It's not really a relationship. Two and a half years later, through a good story of many of you here uh, sticking by me, teaching me what it looks like to really embrace family, community, intimacy. It's different. And so when I share this sermon today, I realize God shared with me, you know, you're talking in front of family, and that makes it a lot easier to share. And I think it's really neat because today's topic is about sex, <laughs> so you know. And uh, it's uh, something I think is good to share in front of your family, you know, the birds and the bees conversation, right? So I think it's interesting, too, that uh, this is a service that is, uh, all the kids are here. So the one, the one service about uh, sexuality, intimacy, the kids get to uh, chime in. So I thought about doing a um, Sesame Street version, you know. <laughs> Today's word is sex, kids. How do you, sp no. Uh, so... Wynn shared last Sunday about uh, just 1 Corinthians, the church, what they struggled with as a society, what the church therefore had to struggle with as a set-apart community within the greater society of Corinth. And uh, the main thing that I felt like he wanted to share is that a lot of the struggles that the church had in, in living in Corinth is very similar to what we deal with, what we struggle with as Christians living in a postmodern, progressed world that doesn't value spirituality and it values sens sensate things, fleshly things, or worldly things like that. This is a body, it's all that matters. It's gonna die, but Live it until it's gone. And so as the Corinthian church lived in this culture that valued so many things, basically saying that we, we value now uh, prosperity and health and wealth and the idolatry that came out of that, Paul was really trying to share with the church, this is how we should live in this culture that does not know 
how to be set apart, how to live like Jesus. Um, I went and saw some pictures of, of Corinth. I wanted to show some of those. Uh, and what struck me was is that Corinth is completely in ruins now. It was a city at the time that uh, it was situated between two bodies of water and like a plateau in the background. And because of that, it was so fortified that it was never, it was not taken by any foreign uh, alien, uh, opposing force until the invention of gunpowder. So think about that. This, this society that was living in the midst of so many worldly things because of all the economic trade coming in, because of the Mediterranean Sea, all, a lot of the, the traders had, had to come through that area to, to do business. So there's a lot of diversity in that area, a lot of diversity of thought, ways, actions. You know, they probably felt pretty good. Like this is utopia. It was the capital of the Roman Empire, which was the biggest nation, the biggest sprawling entity in the world. So it really feels like America. Uh, and in the midst of that, Jesus is saying to the church, there's a new way for you guys to live. And at the core of that, chapters 5 through 7, which would be the topic today, would be about how we live differently in our sex lives, in our marriages, in our relationships with our neighbors. And the reason why I think that's so important is because when I think back to everything that's important and what comes out of a healthy culture, it comes back to how we really operate in the most intimate parts of our lives. So when I think about sex, though, um, I think about what I believed about sexuality before I became a follower of Christ and then before I got married. And so what comes to mind is basically uh, MTV, uh, the music videos, um, all the shaking and all that, you know. And um, <laughs> real world road rules, yeah. So sex was basically you argue, it's a, a dark room, things happen, it's all on camera. <laughs> and sadly, I saw sexuality as something like that as a kid. Is it's kind of all for fun, and it's to be expressed and exposed to everybody, and uh, it's not really all that special. So then, basically, uh, that continued to develop in my mind as I got older, more mature, internet, pornography. It just reinforced this mentality of sex is no big deal. Um, it's something that you do but it's not really, really special. And then I came a Christian, and I, I knew this, I'm going to understand this man called Jesus, and he never had sex. I know, right? He was a man, yet he shared with me a more deep, intimate, real, lasting, long, enduring story of what intimacy and love was that... I knew that TV and MTV and the world never touched on. So I want to get right into 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
the whole chapter, and Paul is addressing a particular uh, sexual issue between a gentleman and his mother-in-law, and uh, it gets pretty hot and heavy. So if you want to join me on your devices or, or, or Bibles, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your, ch- in your church is living, living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must call a meeting on the church. I will be present with you in the spirit, and you will, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you, will, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day of the Lord's return. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this, is, that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is, which is what you, were, you are already. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sac- sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread and wickedness and sin, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you, told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin. Or, uh, or are the greedy, or, or people who cheat, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I mean that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or, in gre- or greedy, or worship idols, or in abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It's, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but the scriptures say you must remove the evil person from among you. Whoa, right? He's not holding punches there. There's a lot of things in there that I think are very counter to our culture narrative today, particularly him saying, remove someone from something, um, exclude someone from doing something. Uh, someone's not allowed to do something. That's the message that you don't hear anywhere in our culture. And if anybody shares something like that, they are instantly vilified right? They're instantly called insensitive, intolerant, uh, a bigot, whatever. But yet, Paul is saying a lot of those things here. And it's hard to call him that because this is scripture. But when I read this, I think about why did he say it? 
why would you expel? Why would you cast someone out who is indulged in sexual sin and that does not see it as wrong? Why is that a big deal? And I think back to what is sin to me and how do I respond to sin? When I sin, uh, what's my attitude about it? And it comes down to this question. Do you see yourself as part of a family or oikos? Or do you see your, your life and choices as just about you? I think that what Paul is trying to talk about here, the main context of this chapter and verses in chapters 5 through 7 is that sin is not about us. It's about how it affects the community. And sexual sin gravely affects not just us, but people around us. The truth is, is sex in sex is a mystery. We don't really understand what it is, but we definitely know that when it is misused, a lot of grave things happen. Families split up, communities become depraved. We get diseases. You know, uh, STDs are now sexually transmitted, um, not diseases, but infections now. It doesn't want to sound as grave. But all these things happen when we misuse that gift. But in all of, I think, in the narrative today of trying to explain what sex is, the truth is we don't fully understand. But if we believe that God created it and that he tells us how to use it, then we should obey how he says to use it. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says here, and the root of our intimacy and our community and how to have healthy community, he says in verse 18, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. How is that so? So he's saying there's other sins that are sinful and affect others, but sexual immorality affects us. So I think to fully explain that, I want to go further into what sex has been used to really illustrate in this intimacy with God. And intimacy is something that we have been constantly attacked by, by the enemy since the beginning. Since the, since the beginning of our creation, since our fall, intimacy with each other and with God has been attacked pervasively by Satan. The fall disrupted perfect intimacy. Genesis chapter 6, verses 3, verses, uh, sorry, 3, verses 6 through 9. We have Adam and Eve here, and they're in a perfect state of intimacy with each other and with God. They are naked and unashamed. We know this story, right? And I think what that shows is that basically they are living in a perfect state of unity and there's no shame in it, and it's, it's beautiful. But in verse 6, something happens. The woman was, conceit, was, was convinced by Satan to eat the fruit of the tree. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some, of her, some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And, that, and in that moment, 
their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about the garden. So they hid. They hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord called out to the, to the man, where are you? Where are you? While in an act of sinning, when you're, when you're feeling like you're in a sinful activity, afterwards, do you feel God say, where are you? I do. There are so many times when I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing, and I just feel this sense of God saying, hey, you're not, you're not with me. I'm, I'm still here, right here, watching you, because I'm everywhere, but I don't feel you're with me. So this is what sexuality and sin does. It's not just like doing certain things the right way. It's about intimacy with God. And in, in the heat of the disruption of intimacy, man hid and God asked where they were. So obviously Paul has seen some pretty blatant things about how we should act in our sex life. And for me, I have to see in my own life, why is the life that Christ calls us into really special and different? And honestly, since we moved into the third ward and just lived in the city, and I think back into my own life, God in the past week has brought me some stories of why uh, sex is such a powerful thing that can be used to bless or disrupt community. So last Christmas, I used to uh, work at Agape Development in the third ward. And uh, one of the days, we had a, a group come in, and they were working with the kids, inner city kids, and they were making ornaments with the kids. Um, and it was really hard to get the kids to cooperate. They're teenagers. They're, like, on their phones. They're like, I don't want to do this. But then after we were done making ornaments and talking about Christmas and, and it's a meeting, uh, one, of the, one of the kids, who's about, who's about 15 now, he was just really uncooperative. And so I felt God saying, hey, why don't you engage him and ask him just what Christmas means to you? So I said, hey, um, what does Christmas mean to you, man? Uh, in this time of the year, what, what comes to your mind? He looks down at his phone, looks at me, down his phone again, starts scrolling. It's like, all right, really, dude? And so I was like, God, give me a word. And I said, what do your parents do on Christmas? What does your family do right now on Christmas? And I didn't think he would respond this way, but he instantly began to cry, like extreme tears bellowing, painful tears. And he dropped his phone. He was like rolling on the couch. And this is a kid that never shows any emotion ever. So I was like, uh, thanks, God. <laughs> God's like, no problem. I got you. You want him to respond, he's responding. 
Now what are you going to do? So <laughs> I just let this guy cry for a moment and just sit there, sat there. It was so awkward that everybody left the room. The, 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 the volunteers, his own brother left the room. He's like, he left the room. It was just me and him. And he just said, basically, I don't, we don't do anything. I don't know where, where my dad is half the time. And I get gifts, but I just want to be with my family. And so what he was telling me was sex misused broke up his marriage, broke up his parents' marriage. And when I get to know this kid more and several of the kids at the facility and many of the older men that come out to our house to worship and soon that are 20 and 19 and 34 years old, <laughs> I see a problem there. There's a lot of emotional um, and psychological abuse simply because there's not a mom and a dad that have decided to stay together no matter what, no matter what. So think about that. And when, we go, when I go back to what Paul is saying, it sounds like love to me, not hate. It sounds like joy, righteousness, wholesomeness, purity, healing, the truth of God to me, not intolerance or insensitivity. It sounds like God. I was, I was um, listening to NPR uh, months ago, and they were talking about the hookup culture in colleges. Um, and how basically uh, it was a girl that was testifying that um, in college, the hookup culture is kind of like the thing. Like, if, you don't, if you're not doing it and you're not involved in it, then you're kind of like a subgroup, a subculture. And what she was sharing in this 30-minute segment is basically that the hookup culture, which basically means sex, <laughs> um, is kind of like... A, a weird form of uh, rape culture into where basically there's, there are these parties and there's dances or hangouts and then and there's, these, there's these guys that are, they, have this, they have status, they're cool or they're, they have a status in, in a certain sorority, fraternities, football team, basketball, whatever, or just, and to get in with that, get to get in with them, Apparently, the other gals kind of build one person up to go and be a part of it. And it's like a, a, it's like a suppressive rite of passage. So I wanted to you know, just see how misusing sexuality is something that um, has caused a lot of problems. Um, but in the midst of our, of our sexual sin, there's a sacrifice. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, it says, Then the Lord said 
to the serpent, the one that caused it all. Because you have done this, you are, you are cursed more than all, all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, growling on the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. Um, you will bruise his heel. And so in the midst of this sexual, this disruption of intimacy, we see Christ. In Christ, we can conquer sin's attack on true intimacy in our relationships, in our oikos, by calling on and living like Jesus. So God is there in the midst of it all, giving a different story. And that story to how we have used sex for ourselves is sacrifice and redemption. So I think back to me and Alyssa in our dating life. Um, before we got married, we didn't have sex. We lived separately. And for me, uh, I knew that was right because I'm, I'm a believer and, you know, and I wanted to do that. But when I knew I was with someone that I was planning to marry, it was harder to, like, not try to validate it with that. But I realized that through the time of waiting, God continued to show me more and more what true intimacy was and how we waited. And there was one time where we did cross some boundaries, and I felt really bad about it. And I felt like, well, why do I feel bad about it? Because this is what you do if you're going to get married anyway. But God convicted me to go back to her and, and basically apologize. And I did. And I, we instantly saw this new form of intimacy come into our relationship again. But while we were dating, Alyssa helped me see intimacy through how she treated me. She served me. She listened to me. She validated what I like to do. And I, in turn, reciprocated. And we realized that, hey, there's something deeper here that's bigger than just the act of sexual sex that wouldn't have happened unless we walked into that weird set-apart relationship of loving each other and serving each other. We actually became evangelists with this. And so when, we, when friends would spend time with us, and ask us how we met and what we and how that went. Um, we would share that very story: how we lived separately in different apartments, um, and we, we uh, would go on road trips and basically uh, even stay in different hotel rooms. And and and, and explaining that with uh, the hotel lobby secretary people, like, wait, there's two of you. Why are there two rooms? Even that was a way to witness to people. It was weird, but it was a witness. And we saw in those moments with our friends and even with hotel lobby secretaries, <laughs> the kingdom of God was being revealed in our set-apart life. So why do we do this? And should we do it as Christians? I think that if we, if we don't heed Paul's words, we have... The fear of being a, we have the potential of being a false witness to Christ as Christians. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. 
Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or, or male prostitutes practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds again very exclusive, right? Not the message you want to hear in our society today. I want to go forward to Matthew 12, verse 32 to 33. So what does this mean about inheriting the kingdom of God? And why can't people who do these things not inherit it? Jesus says in Matthew 12, Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, either in this world or in the world to come. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, it will bear good fruit. If a tree is bad, it will bear bad fruit. So putting this, these two things together of inheriting the kingdom and bearing fruit, what, what the Word of God is trying to say is that if we are indulging in sin and we see it as good, then where is the kingdom of God in our heart? It's about understanding that being set apart means hating sin. And the Spirit of God only can make someone do that if the Spirit of God is in you. But if you say you're a Christian and you are actively living in sin, as we all do, but you don't see it as sin, then is the Spirit of God really in your heart? And when it comes to bearing fruit, we know that only Jesus can bear fruit in us. We can't bear fruit on our own. But if Christ is in us and we hate the sin in us, that he will bring the fruit of righteousness in our lives through repentance. Good news is, if we repent of that and desire to not live in sin, Christ will forgive us. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim we have sent no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all wickedness. If we confess, not if we start today, we're going to not do anything wrong. <laughs> we're going to live in different rooms and pray, you know, with our hands, with our legs folded, and then that will forgive us. He's just saying, if we turn to Jesus in our sin, he will cleanse us of our sin. So I have a good buddy that's a pastor in Colorado, um, and when he became an ordained priest, he started to walk around in Denver and with his full regalia on. And uh, he realized that he was getting a lot of, a lot of positive responses. It thought he was kind of like a hipster, I guess, like mocking the church. And so like, oh, that's really cool, man. But when he would engage them in conversation and say, no, I really am a pastor, and I really am walking around showing that I'm a pastor, it was like, oh, all right. <laughs> and he got a lot more different responses. And, so I, and seeing that, I think that what it shows is it's easy to say, but it's hard to be. It's cool to say, but it's hard to be, right? I'm learning that right now, you know? And being a Christian I mean, I feel like God's called me to, to pastor, but just being a Christian is hard 
to do. Easy to say. But, you know, we can't wear the jersey and not want to play the game. Football. That's right. We can't play it. So. You know, I think about that. So, as Christians, we put on the full uniform. We're saying we're Christians. We're saying we represent Jesus. And that comes with something. You know? I think about if... Uh, Adrian walked around and said, I'm Howard. And he's saying things that I would say kind of, but not. Uh, maybe he's saying the wrong things. Maybe he's walking around with uh, Daisy Dukes on, I don't know, or something. <laughs> I'm trying to find something to say. <laughs> something not like me. And then I run into him. I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, hey, yeah, that's good, yeah, yeah, that's totally me, that's right, yeah. I'm like, no, take those off, right? That's how it is as Christians. If we say we're believers, we have a blessed mantle and a blessed calling to represent Christ to the world, and it needs to be weird and set apart so they can see who it really is like, what it's really like to be a Christian. So they can choose something that's different, not something that's the same. So what about married life and non-married life? I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about marriage, and he basically just says that in verse chapter, uh, 7 verse chapter 9, Verse 9 of chapter 7, but if, we, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than to burn in lust. So just basically, he's saying, get married if you can. But he's also saying to people who are believers, this is how marriage really can turn around a culture. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 14 and 16. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. And the unbelieving husband brings holiness, holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But, but now they are holy. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? And so in how we conduct ourselves as Christians in our marriage, sacrificially loving each other as Christ did, that has something that can bless the entire family and the entire community if they see how we live. Living the way God calls sexually and in our families and oikoses is a calling, sacrifice, and blessing. It pleases God. It pleases God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But I would say, let the world conform to you, the way you live your life. But it is a sacrifice, and it's painful. But that is the blessing and the calling of saying we are followers of Christ. 
Jesus said that others will see the light in you if you love not like this world, and they will be drawn to it. John 13, 34, 35 says, So now I'm giving you a new command. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so the world will see that this whole following Jesus thing is different and worth taking on if they see a different love in us than what they see everywhere else. So this is, if this is tough for you, if you're wrestling with this, or if you've been deciding upon how do I operate as a Christian and in my intimate places of my life, and you don't really know what to do, how to do it, ask God to change your heart. He can do it. Ask God to change your heart, to give you a desire for the kingdom of God. When I look back at all the issues that we see in our culture with marriage, not married, broken communities, social injustice, I think, what if strong families that stay together is like a big part of the answer? How much can be healed? It's just that one thing is done. We might not need so many new laws or new rules or, or rallies or protests if we just stay together. Just thinking about that. So if you desire to live like Christ, this may be the one thing we can champion to do, is living like Christ in our relationships, being faithful and committed to each other sacrificially loving each other so that the world may see that we are truly Christ's disciples. So let's be weird. Yeah? Let's be set apart for Christ. All right, that's it. I'm going to pray real quick. Lord, thank you so much for my family here and my friends that are here. I just am so blessed to be here. This time flew by. I just praise you for calling us as Christians to not be like the world, but to be different. And that though it may be hard, though it may be painful, it's an honor. And that you will do miraculous things if they see something different. And even if they don't, but you call us to be set apart. May you give us the strength to do so. May you call our hearts to do so. And may we honor you in everything we do, particularly in our lives, in our intimacy with each other. In Jesus' name, I give you praise. Amen. Thanks, Howard, for the word that you gave us this morning. We we are a church that we believe in making disciples. And so as you see different people preaching, as you see different people up here leading, that is because we believe that the Lord, through his breath, through his spirit, raises up people for leadership. And so we want to bring forth our new board member, Victor, if you want to come on up, Victor Arias. And then David Adams, he is going to be 
Yeah, look at that. Come on up. And then we got David Adams here. He is joining the elders as well. And so let's give thanks for him as well. So if you are not aware, Oikos does have a board of directors. And in the board of directors, you are elected to a three-year term. So Victor has graciously accepted this three-year term. And then the board very quickly said, how about you be the treasurer? So if you have any questions about the finances, <laughs> he doesn't know anything yet, but he will. So Victor is taking that position. David was nominated by our elders to join the elder group. And that elder team, as we continue to go forward, it's an elder is nominated by me, then the elders have to unanimous, unanimously say he is good and we want him as an elder. And then he has to go before the board of directors and they have to say, yes, we agree. So that is how an elder is brought into the elder team. That's a lifetime appointment unless they would choose to step away. So these are some things that the scripture says and I'm gonna invite people Whoever here in the Covenant family would like to have a word, we're going to pray over these guys. I'm going to anoint them with oil. But as you come forward, I'm going to share a word from, not Colossians. But First Timothy chapter 3. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children, the respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and then the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must, not be, they must be committed to the mystery of faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as a deacon, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. The reason why we go through this process of choosing people over a period of time, in fact, at this time, too, Hey, Moores, do you want to just stand up since you're with us today? Can we welcome the Moores? So I'm going to give you just a little bit of insight. You guys can go ahead and sit down. They, this is their first Sunday. And so with the way we operate with people coming into the families, we say, we're going to examine you for a year. I know that sounds like crazy, right? But we're set apart. Because we want to make sure that you really want to be a part of the family. So... Even though I saw a great leadership in Victor, I didn't ask him to be a part of leadership until they kind of eclipsed a year with us. Because I don't want to have someone in leadership 
he doesn't really want to be a part of the family. Same thing with David Adams. We, some of you have experienced that he's a great teacher. Some of you have heard him preach. But I wanted to see that he was around for about a year, that he really wanted to be a part of the family. So we take this examining our leaders seriously, and this is your responsibility as part of the church as well. If you see David Adams out there drinking heavily, you go tell him about it. If you see Victor being a bad dad, say, hey, Vic, step it up, but do so in love because we do this together. So I'm going to anoint you guys with oil, and then we're going to pray over you. remind you that as you lead the church, as you walk together with Jesus, that you do so in repentance and belief, that you would lead others in the way of Jesus, that you would rebuke in gentleness, and that you would invite with boldness. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, for uh, Victor, I have a passage for you. It comes from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And God raises... It's not right. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And for David, the... The, the words from um, Matthew, God says disciples out to be amongst people in that great chapter. And I think God asks you to do that as an elder in this church. So we pray for that. So from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me, just as I imitate Christ. I sent this out yesterday from 1 Peter. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I, too, am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I, too, will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock 
that God has entrusted to you, watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to you, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Okay, I just have a short verse for you guys, for both Victor and David. Um, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend, from Proverbs 27, 17. And my prayer is that you guys would just come to your your boards, uh, the board of directors, Victor, and sharpen that group, and that group will sharpen you, and David, you will sharpen the elders, and we will, sh- it will be, uh, uh, will sharpen you too. That's my prayer, and that we would be a blessing to this family of Oikos. David, as I, as I prayed and listened for the Lord, what He would give you today, is an encouragement that, that your strength is found in your gentleness, and that what you will bring to this congregation. Is, is the gentleness that will reveal Jesus, the kindness of the Lord that leads others to repentance. And so may you be faithful, knowing that God is first faithful to you. And we are truly blessed to have you as an elder of this congregation. Um, and Victor, your strength is found in your faithfulness and ability to work as a team. And so I pray that as you step into the board of directors that that the vision and the mission of Oikos Church would be able to, um, that we would continue to be united with this vision that you have given us. And as we work together as a team to build spiritual family and to make disciples, that heaven would be shown here on earth through your leadership and through the work in the board. So may you both be encouraged to know that you guys are extremely loved and it's a privilege to serve with both of you guys. And in our Oikos family, we spend time giving thanks. And as I prayed about this this morning and throughout the weekend, 1 Timothy uh, 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened you to do his work. He has considered you trustworthy and appointed you to serve him. And may you serve him with that strength because he will be there to guide you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we're able to commission and send people from this place that you call Oikos. May you continue to shower your grace and your peace upon us as your people because we're not just random people, but we're your children. You know each of us by name. You love us. And at this time and at this place, you have put Victor in leadership and you have also put David in leadership. May they lead well, Lord as they follow after you. In your name we pray, amen.